support Narrative's independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative and check out our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to subscribe and download. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Narrative Live. Uh, hello, Eric. Can you hear me? You sound great. Ah, awesome. You sound great, too. Nice to see you. Oh, well, yay. Uh, LB, you're there? I'm here. Awesome. And the man we've been dying to speak to, and he's here tonight, David Scheimer, who's the author of the new book, Rigged, that everyone is raving about, including Hillary Clinton, which is quite an endorsement to get. Um, how are you doing, David? I'm, do I'm doing well. Yeah, thank you guys so much for, for having me. It's great to have you on. Your book is certainly beginning to cause a lot of waves, especially as people into the election season in proper form. But I noticed in your book that you're laying some of the blame, at least, at the Obama administration for not taking all of this as seriously as they might have early enough. Is that an accurate assessment? I don't know if I don't know if blame is the right word. I think what I what I try to do in the book is to recreate um, the debates that were taking place in the Obama administration in the summer and fall of 2016 about how to respond to Russia's operation based on the intelligence that they had before them. And, and it's a riveting, exciting story um, that I also think is tremendously instructive because it shows us what makes it difficult to defend against a covert operation to interfere in an election in the digital age. And, and what I found and is kind of the core thesis of that section of the book is that Russia was engaging in two types of interference at once. They were systemically targeting our voting systems with uh, the Russian military intelligence was doing this, the GRU, and they did have the capability to manipulate our voter data and even our vote tallies as folks like John Brennan and, and, and Jay Johnson recounted to me. But at the same time, Russia was hacking and releasing emails um, and they were also spreading massive amounts of propaganda on social media. And what I found is that for President Obama, balancing those two forms of interference at once, responding to both of them at once was very difficult. And he prioritized the former. He, he, he cared most about preventing an election day cyber attack against our voting systems. And as a result, the latter, the, the, the mind section, the, the manipulation of public opinion um, forms, the emails and what was known about social media, which was quite limited, was sort of put off as we could respond to this later. Um, so much so that on election day itself, as I revealed, the White House was running a, a secret crisis team, um, as was DHS, bracing for a Russian cyber attack against our voting system. So I, I don't know if blame's the right word. I just think I want people to understand um, why President Obama responded the way he did to Russia's operation based on the interviews I conducted with 26 of his advisors. Um, and, and, I, and I hope readers will, will make their own judgments about whether they think the decisions he made were warranted um, and if they would handle it differently moving forward, because I think that's what we should all be thinking about. This is, I think, the story of the century and the most important story uh, in American democracy in our lifetimes. Um, which has become more and more clear over the last four years. How did you stumble upon this topic and what made you go to such depths here? Because this is the most uh, co cohesive, coherent, broadest, best researched book in the unclassified space probably ever on this topic. How did you get into it? Sure. So, and, and yeah, maybe first I'll say what, what the book is about for, for folks who might not be familiar sure. with it. So what, what I do in this book um, is I restore history um, to the subject of covert electoral interference, which is covert operations to interfere in, in overseas elections. Um, and I and I did that in answer to your question because I found it not only disturbing, but, but dangerous how little of this history was known after 2016, so that in the public, 2016 was viewed as this unprecedented event. But the problem when something's unprecedented is that there's no history and you could manipulate people's perception of it. You could create myths, you can create lies because it exists in a vacuum when in reality it's anything but. So in this book, I show how the Soviet Union and America, um, the CIA have interfered in elections all over the world in the 20th century. Um, predominantly during the Cold War and competition between the KGB and the CIA. I then show how Putin's Russia has interfered in elections all over the world um, in the 21st century using um, same old ideas, but just um, digital means. And then I show um, what happened in 2016 with that history in the backdrop and go through the Trump era as well um, before charting out a path forward for, for democracies everywhere, because this is a global story. And in terms of how I got into this subject, 
Um, I was reporting for the New York Times in Germany um, in the summer of 2017, and I was able to spend several hours with a former East German intelligence officer, the Stasi, um, and he walked me through a, a spectacular operation that he helped execute in 1972 that decisively altered the outcome of a democratic vote of succession in West Germany to keep Willy Brandt in power. I saw that, I saw 2016, and in my mind, I just wondered, you know, how many more examples of this are there? How, how far back does this history go? And, and I ended up studying that as a, for, my, for my PhD, and the, the research just took on a life of its own. I ended up interviewing more than 130 people, as you, as you pointed out online, eight former CIA directors, Bill Clinton, you know, a former KGB general, all sorts of folks across six countries, thousands and thousands of archival documents. And I just kind of became obsessed with it because I really believe that in order to understand our current plight, in order to understand why America is so exposed and what we can do about it, we have to understand our own past. We have to identify the patterns of history yes. in order to understand what happened in 2016 and what we can do about it. So, so that's why I wrote this book, and I really hope that it helps folks understand our current moment in a much more comprehensive um, way. Yes, so David. <laughs> Love it. Yes, so context for the current moment. For the context of that, for people who don't remember these long ago years, uh, you know, of uh, three whole years ago, which feels like three decades. Um, you're, you're around the time the, that Jim Comey has been fired. They have appointed Robert Mueller. And in the media, America and other countries are hearing it's a Russia hoax on left and right, which is very interesting given Russian military political science. And, that, and around that time, you're in, in Germany and you meet an agent of the Stasi and he tells you, oh, not only is that a thing, I did those things. I influenced elections. I changed history. And, and so then you went back and looked at how many of, uh, how long this has been going on. When did Russia start this in the United States and other countries? Sure. So, so I could walk through the history in, in brief of, of sort of what I found in, in, in recreating this story. And, and the starting point is in 1919, um, which is when Vladimir Lenin, the, the, the first Soviet leader, founded something known as the Communist International, which was an international organization of communist parties with the express purpose of bringing those communists into power. Um, abolishing their pre-existing governments and shedding their, their national borders. And is, in doing so, that necessitated the idea of in order to get communists into power, you should interfere in their elections. So what, what Lenin's Communist International and then Stalin's Communist International did was provide money, provide propaganda, provide instruction to communist parties all over the world, including um, in the United States. But this was, a, this was very limited in its effectiveness and reach. It was really most significant as an idea. Um, but these communist parties struggled during the interwar period. A, a real turning point comes at the end of the Second World War, um, where Joseph Stalin then has his forces move through Eastern Europe um, and aggressively interfere and rig, really, the elections in countries like Poland, East Germany, um, and Hungary with tactics that directly foreshadow Putin's. Things like altering um, voter data, targeting um, actual vote tallies, um, purging voter rolls, spreading massive amounts of propaganda, millions of posters and pamphlets and leaflets designed to manipulate public opinion. And, and, a, and, a, and a kind of a, 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 a pivotal moment in this history comes when after those Eastern European elections, after Eastern Europe becomes filled with communist governments, um, the Truman administration decides we, we are not going to let Italy um, go communist because there was an election in which the communists allied with the Social Democrats were um, competing against um, the, 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 with the, against the Christian Democrats. So what Harry Truman decided was we are going to authorize the CIA to engage in covert action with the express purpose of interfering in an election. That is the starting point of the his CIA's history of covert action. In fact, a massive operation follows to interfere in the Italian election. Um, it ends up working in from the perspective of the CIA because the Christian Democrats won, at which point they decide we are going to make this part of our foreign policy strategy. So the CIA and KGB then interfere in elections all over the world between 1948 and 1991 in places like Chile, Guyana, Japan, El Salvador, um, again, targeting both voters' minds and actual vote tallies. And then finally, a divergence takes place after the Cold War, where America moves away from this practice with rare exceptions that I also detail in the book, whereas Russia not only rediscovers it, but doubles down on it um, and enhances it with the internet and is now once again, as in 1919, interfering in elections all over the world. They just have much 
greater reach, much greater potential as a result of the internet yeah. and, and new ambitions in the leader of Vladimir Putin. There's nothing wrong, is there, with the idea of uh, interfering in another country's elections if you're doing it overtly? I mean, it's a, it seems like a, a part of a democratic process that everyone should have sort of a vote or a voice in, in, the, world, in the world affairs, and there's nothing wrong if Vladimir Putin says he prefers, uh, you know, Trump over Hillary Clinton. This, that seems perfectly legitimate, as long as he's not Actually, doing it. But would that, be, would that be covert interference? I'd love for David to define that. You know, you very specifically at the top of your book define the words that you use and make it really clear what you're specifically talking about, which is not just weighing and having opinions or, you know, it's this covert interference. And sure. What so, words mean to you. Yeah, it's a covert electoral interference is a very specific thing. And, and it's and it's defined based on those three words, covert, electoral and interference to, to be covert. It means the hand of the interfering actor is hidden. So if you are interfering in an election um, by endorsing a candidate, that, that's not hidden. Barack Obama, for example, uh, endorsed the Remain campaign in the United Kingdom in 2016. That was visible. It wouldn't qualify. But if you release emails through a third party, the effect of that is visible. You see the emails, but because you do it through, say, WikiLeaks, your hand is hidden, therefore it's covert. The second word is electoral. That means that you're targeting a vote that determines another country's leader. If you if you just are seeking to influence you know, citizens as, a, as an end in itself, maybe to favor one form of governance over another, that's not targeting an election, so it's therefore not something that I study in the book. And the third thing is interference, which means that you're deploying active measures. You're not just watching, you're acting, you're interfering. So if you just hack into the DNC and, and keep the materials you have to study them, that doesn't count. But if you then have those materials and then release them into the public domain in order to interfere in an electoral process, you therefore are engaging in interference. So I define covert electoral interference um, as a concealed foreign effort to, to manipulate a democratic vote of succession. And as it turns out, that is a phenomenon that has underlied 100 years of, of history across the United States, across Russia, around the world, um, including many Cold War era US elections that, that the KGB aggressively targeted. So, so this is a wide ranging and long running story um, that makes Putin's operation seem like what it was, which is just a natural evolution of a long running practice. Little about what he did was original. Everything about it was an extension of what had come before him. So what made 2016 So he so knew what he was doing. Yeah, I mean, if you break down what he did, it, it makes it it makes it all seem a lot less impressive in some ways, because, for example, what did he do? He, he sought to help. Donald Trump hurt Hillary Clinton and so discord, help a candidate you liked, hurt one he didn't like and so discord. The KGB did that in almost every Cold War era US presidential election. I spent five hours with a former KGB general who was stationed in the United States for, for um, over a decade. And he said, you know, that's exactly what we did to hurt people like Richard Nixon or Ronald Reagan and to turn Americans against each other. So that's not original. Targeting voting systems as the GRU did. Well, as I said, Joseph Stalin rigged votes across Eastern Europe and Russian intelligence has been targeting voting systems in countries like Ukraine and elsewhere. So that's not original either. Hacking and releasing the private information of, of public figures that is the tradition of Russian intelligence, the tradition of Russian espionage, where you, you find vulnerable people, you steal their information and you release it. In the 1976 election, the KGB concocted a forgery about the private life of a presidential candidate, Henry Scoop Jackson, and released it to a bunch of newspapers in the hopes of destroying him. In 2016, what the Internet allowed was rather than just have one fake document, they had tens of thousands of real documents. And rather than have to send them to newspapers, you could just upload them right online. So the reach is greater. The, the, the effectiveness in some ways is, can be presumed to be greater. But the idea, again, outing the private lives of public figures, that's very old. And the last thing, social media perhaps seems the most novel, but is anything but. Because what Russia was doing across social media was spreading propaganda through third parties, through what's known as cutouts, in order to scare voters, in order to sow racial discord, in order to suppress some voters, to turn out other voters. Um, and, and, and guess what? All of those ideas are, are rooted not only in Soviet history, but in American history. Because the KGB and the CIA have done all of those things to influence people, to influence elections all over the world. So what he achieved was reaching Americans at scale. America had never been penetrable in such a wide ranging way because that is what the internet has now allowed for. And he also turbocharged pre-existing ideas, but to therefore say that what he did was unprecedented forgets history and leaves us blind to anticipating what he might do next. 
So what made the social media so different in 2016? Was it because there were no gatekeepers or no traditional gatekeepers? Or is it the amount of data that Russia was able to collect on Americans in order to so heavily influence them? Um, because those two things, I think, are very different from what has been around in the past. Sure. I mean, I mean, the thing about social media that I find really powerful is is the gold standard of covert electoral interference is to manipulate people based on who they are, what they believe, to target you because you they know what will make you tick. In in the pre digital era, that was very difficult to do. And in Italy in 1948 is really the only time America achieved it um, writ large, which is when the CIA concocted um, an initiative where they had Italian Americans send 10 million letters back to Italy, to their relatives, to their loved ones, saying, don't vote for the communists because of X, Y, and Z, and, and appealing to who they were. But to replicate that was almost impossible. It was a real grassroots moment. What social media does is it makes it so easy to do that because everyone who's on social media has shown who they are. They've uploaded their psyches. They've uploaded their personalities onto these platforms. So for intelligence services, this makes it possible to target you in a real in a, in a very accessible way, but also in a way where you reach the masses. You're both reaching the masses and right. doing so in a targeted way. So that is new. And again, the, the penetration of the United States is new because other historically less well-developed democracies were more vulnerable to this sort of thing. Um, newer democracies were more vulnerable. America, even though the KGB tried, never really was influenced in one of its elections in any meaningful way. Social media changed the game in that regard. And it makes it so much easier to corrupt our information space because like you said, no more gatekeepers. If you steal something, you can just put it right onto Twitter. So it's just made us more exposed. It's made it so that people can be manipulated based on who they are. But again, the tactics underlying what Russia does on social media, none of them are new. Mass customization of propaganda targeted to the psyche because companies like Facebook did illegal scientific psychiatric experiments on people getting those. Well, the profiling is not illegal. Cambridge Analytica. Yeah, it did. Cambridge Analytica. And that being foreign, that adds a whole nother layer of this. But it's the same, the, the, the same playbook, which is why so many spooks had their hair on fire the whole year. They're like, this is, we've seen this before. We know exactly what it is. We know exactly who it is. But this stuff with this social media is different, which is why, uh, from my sources, I hear, you know, they went to Silicon Valley in, in 2013, 14, 15, 16, and said, this is new. You need to pay attention. And that, those were the years of Snowden and WikiLeaks and the American media picking that up as if they were publishers and not disinformation agents or worse full-on agents of foreign powers and so we didn't cover it that way and here we are lb yeah i i have a, i have kind of questions in this vein for you david because i feel like there's a couple of things i want to talk about first of all i want to know what it was like for you as a researcher and a writer um first of all you had access to stuff that was just incredible but what was the experience like for you? You said, you know, things started revealing themselves and everything. Did you have like, we, we have this saying here of like, we're either on, you either started on team cry or team puke, right? When you start researching and you kind of get a sense of, oh my gosh, look what happened to us. And oh, we've been so blind. And, and then you start seeing the players and depending on what rabbit hole you go down to, you end up either on your knees crying or on your knees in front of the toilet, just puking. Um, so did you have moments like that? You don't have to share the, the bodily functions, but maybe where it was just, oh my God, you know, just those revelatory moments where you could see it, where you could see the specificity and the scope all at once of what happened to us and what, what, was, your, what was your experience of that? I'm just dying to know yeah. what that was like no, for I you. Mean, I mean, I, I, I think I choose option C, which was I just felt... So I was so team adrenaline and so team urgency where I just felt like I was gathering so much information emergency. That, that, that just wasn't um, present in the public domain, which I felt really had to be before the 2020 election, because it puts so much of what is happening into a into a digestible, understandable way for people who have been told this is all just out of nowhere. This is all, you know, even made up. Um, when in fact, yeah. it's just a continuation of a long running history. And in terms of, you know, more jarring moments, I mean, I would say when I interviewed a few um, 
a few of the White House advisors to President Obama and, and really getting in the weeds of how exposed our voting systems were, um, how vulnerable we were to having the actual voter data and vote tallies of American citizens being manipulated. Um, that was quite jarring for me um, because I think that that had been purposely underplayed to avoid alarming Americans. Um, and, and I think that that was much more present inside the government than outside as a, as a, as a concern in the summer wow. of fall of and that for me persists to this day. I mean, I would say when I spend time with people like the KGB general, um, like former CIA directors, DNIs, like um, former deputy directors of CIA, so many CIA officers and hearing the story and hearing the history of this, again, just urgency and wanting to get it out there because what I hope readers will find is that, you know, 2016 was just the latest episode in a very long running story. And, 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 and to tell that whole story, I mean, it's not only instructive, it's fascinating. Um, and, and it makes yeah. the whole century look different. So, so I, I, I don't know if I ever felt, you know, like I was on my hands and knees, but more like, I mean, I wrote this book in, in a rather small, minor, you know, pretty expedited period of time. Um, and for me, I think that was just because I felt like it just had to be written. So I ended up spending really all of the time that I possibly could um, working on this and running around the world, interviewing people, going through archives, and then writing as quickly as I can um, this history because it just felt like it mattered, especially given where we are and how vulnerable our country is um, to manipulation between now and November. Oh, I, I think the puking's come for, coming for you when you get a little, <laughs> when you get to my age. You just, you've got, I, I so appreciate that urgency and that's, that calling yeah. is amazing. Um, okay, so my next thing is, this is my next question. So understanding that this is a century-long perfected um, tactic of our enemy that we also had as well. I, I loved how you had all those notations in there and really, and I love that chapter on Italy. But we'll, we'll have another conversation about that another day because it's all these things came clear for me. Um, it, it was just wonderful, wonderful history, wonderful history. Um, but does it make any sense to you now, understanding the KGB's tactics, understanding the century-long perfection of, of, of these taxes, of how to influence people's minds, right? Because that's really what it was, it was a mind influence. We're gonna, we're gonna get, lean into grievances, you know, because boy, you can convert people into action with grievances. And, okay, so up on the scene come these tools all of a sudden. We start seeing social media sites, right? We have Web 2.0 happening. We have Facebook sort of emerging. You have Twitter then emerges. All, all these new platforms that looks like this is where the conversation for America is going to go. And also people are offering up their data. They're plugging their data in. If you're the KGB and you're looking at these emerging technologies, would you be looking at them in a way of saying, hey, these will be useful to us? These are the, these are the kinds of uh, tools that we might want to have some control over or at least some investment in, especially if you go back and you see that actual KGB-affiliated officers um, who are also connected in organized crime in Russia, because it's the same thing over there, were investing hundreds of millions of dollars in these emerging technologies at really critical points for their growth and development. What is your take on that? Knowing what you know about what their aims and their goals are and their century long perfection of propaganda as a tool to influence, right? What you say is sort of there's individual and systemic that they're looking for in terms of election interference. So we're gonna either change the outcome of an individual election or we're gonna have a systemic change that we're gonna go for in a society that we're seeking to have our message our control over right you don't you don't influence an election unless you're trying to get an outcome that's favorable to yourself if you're KGB or the US right we're trying that sure. that's the goal that's the goal. We otherwise, why bother with this, right? Like you're, yeah, you're no, and I think so. Okay, well, I'll, I'll, so I'll take that because there, there's a lot, a lot there. That's a lot. It's yeah. A lot. So I want to to go through what those different pieces. The the first is, as you said, the difference between individual and systemic change, and that's really important. And what that means is that some operations to interfere in elections just have to do with helping some candidate or hurting another, not to transform a country, but just to get the person you want in power into power. And that's something that, again, Russian, Soviet, American intelligence have done. 
The other form of interference, which can go hand in hand with individual change, is systemic change, which means either trying to elect a candidate who will build up their democracy or tear down their democracy. And that's really where historically America and the Russians have have diverged because the Soviet objective was to elect communists who would disband their democracies. Putin's objective is to degrade, discredit, corrupt, and ultimately transform democracies. And American presidents sometimes wrongly have believed that they could use covert electoral interference to either defeat candidates who would degrade their democracies or to, to promote candidates who would maintain their democracies. But in terms of your point about the internet and the Russians, what I would say is that, A, we shouldn't overstate the case for the Internet only being a good um, for, for authoritarians. Vladimir Putin is someone who's very paranoid about the maintenance of his own power and has seen the Internet. He's called it a CIA project because he believes that the Internet can be used by his own citizens to foment revolution against him, um, as he feared in, in 2011, especially when there were wide ranging protests that he actually blamed on Hillary Clinton, which 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 many CIA analysts believed is part of what motivated him to target her campaign starting in 2014. But I would also say that on the flip of that, to your point, we have to recognize who Putin is, which is that he came up with the KGB. He came up with a, with an intelligence service that was interfering in elections all over the world and where his own work revolved around studying people, understanding people, figuring out how to manipulate people, which, as you said, is the art of covert electoral interference, molding minds. So when you then have the Internet come into play, someone like Putin will see the opportunity to, to turn that to his own ends. One of his key advisors, I was talking um, with Eric about this a little earlier, Vladislav Surkov, he, 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 he said, you know, with the Internet, are we going to be the spiders or are we going to be the flies? And that's a very that's a very important question, I think, in Russian policymaking. Are we going to be the people who get kind of screwed over by this or the people who who undermine others with this new tool? And from his perspective, Putin's perspective, the new objective isn't to advance some ideology um, like communism. He's freed himself of ideological constraints. Yeah. He just wants to bring down democracy, to corrupt democracy, right. to degrade democracy. And what the Internet does is it makes it so much easier to do that because you can corrupt information spaces. You can do all these things we're talking about, all these tactics and tools with less money, with less planning time and in more countries. So I think knowing who he is as a leader is really important and seeing what he's after. And he's just seeking to because he, he recognizes something that's important, which is that democracies die almost always as corrupted versions of themselves. It's not like the United States is going to be, you know, invaded and, and, and overthrown. It's that the United States will slowly transform internally into a country that its own people don't necessarily recognize and that reflects Russian attributes. And, and that's what Vladimir Putin is seeking to do in many different countries, preying upon, by the way, pre-existing weaknesses, pre-existing deficiencies and corruption. Right. It's not as though America is this perfect country that Putin is corrupting. Right. He's just exacerbating weaknesses and shortcomings that already exist. Now, Putin is not right. acting alone, and neither is Russia acting alone. I mean, there's obviously allies involved here, some of which appear to be also um, American allies, whether it's Israel, Saudi Arabia or others. Uh, how do you square that away um, in terms of a geopolitical game that we're playing when our own allies might be actually behind our backs cooperating with our adversaries? So, so I can't necessarily comment on that. I mean, what I found in my research is that the tradition of covert electoral interference is a tradition foremost of, of Russia and secondarily of the United States. And perhaps today, based on what you're saying, other countries are kind of adopting this tactic and saying we're going to also interfere in your elections. But I mean, I scoured archives, I interviewed people, as many people as I could get to. And this is something that Russia has been doing with only brief interruptions since 1919. Secondarily, this is something that the CIA did consistently during the Cold War and with ra in rare instances since in cases like Serbia, as I discussed in the book in 2000, which Bill Clinton was um, open to discussing with me on the record in an interview that we did. Um, and, and maybe and, and what's interesting, though, is that there could be a turning point here, because what 2016 was in the in the history sense is it was the first time that the issue of covert electoral interference registered with the world. Because before then, no one really thought about this much. It was something that happened in the shadows. People found it less interesting than things like coup plotting or things like assassinations. So no one, you know, countries like Israel or Saudi or Iran or North Korea weren't, I don't believe, very conscious of the potential effectiveness of this. And after 2016, I've been very interested to see whether other countries will now start to imitate the former superpowers or, or, you know, the Soviet Union and Cold War America, because now it's accessible, they can do this, but it's just not a part of the Saudi or Israeli tradition of intelligence as it is Russian intelligence. That's just, they just don't have 
any historical parallel. Um, so, so maybe they'll try to start playing catch up, but it is not in the lifeblood of any other country as it is Russia, which is why I believe Russia is the pioneer here, because, because the people who are running the Russian government are people who were doing this a generation ago, and that is not so um, in Israel or, or in Saudi or in any of these other countries. So, so again, history here matters because, because people ask, are Iran and North Korea just going to start doing this too? Well, if you exist just in 2016, then conceivably that might make sense. Maybe that would make sense that Iran will just launch an operation as complex and, and wide reaching as Russia's tomorrow. But when you restore 100 years, suddenly you realize maybe Iran can imitate an email hack and release, or maybe Iran can imitate targeting voting systems. But do I think Iran's going to be the one at the forefront of breaking new ground here? It would surprise me. I think that that is much more likely to be Russia because Russia, again, this is something that is in sort of their, their the DNA of the folks who are in their intelligence services. And that's not just Russia, secondarily, again, the CIA. So so that is the history that I that I get at. So I, I'm skeptical of claims that this will just become a global thing. And the last thing I'll say to that point is you need a global strategy to interfere in elections on a global basis. So Putin has that. He wants to degrade democracies on a global basis. I do not see the case that Saudi or Iran has reason to be targeting democracies all over the world. I don't think that makes any sense given their foreign policy objectives. So that's another reason why I'm skeptical of the idea that suddenly everyone will be in on the game all over the world. I, 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 to me, that doesn't really check out. I mean, it seems that the Mueller report and, and the reporting around certain events in 2016 are pretty clear that uh, the Saudis and the Israelis uh, in different ways supported the Trump campaign, whether it was monetarily uh, to support the the uh, Psy influence operation, or the Israeli actually providing the Psy influence operation, that there was involvement of those two countries. Now, whether they were just doing it in order to achieve their strategic objectives, which weren't to destroy democracy, but to just you know get the Middle East or whatever it is they were trying to play for, they were still involved with Russia in trying to get this um, this Trump elected, and that to be is significant that there's sort of a broader group of countries that might latch on to someone like Russia who have this longevity and experience in order to to exact this kind of change that they're looking for. Sure. I mean, I, I, again, I don't feel confident enough to be able to comment on, on what Israel or Saudi were or were not doing in 2016. But what I would say is that they were not launching a, a, a complex covert operation to interfere in America's election in the way that we saw Russia do in seeking to infest our information environment and in seeking to steal and release um, documents um, and seeking to reach hundreds of millions of Americans across social media and seeking to systemically breach our voting system. So 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 to me that's that's unique and distinct and, and, and a continuation of the past and 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 the other the other contents you're you're discussing. I'm neither saying I agree or I disagree. I just don't think that that's part of what I research. What you did research was, okay, was so Donald me, Trump in twenty in, in the lead up to to the nineteen eighties and beyond visiting Russia and you know to some extent either getting compromised by what is what he did there. Um, and you, you've got a you know nice excerpt in your book about that, but do you believe that Trump was a longer-term project for the Russians in terms of developing him as a potential candidate? I, w I wouldn't speculate on that. I mean, what I did find is that the KGB general who I interviewed um, said that when he was in Russia and in, uh, in the Soviet Union in 1987 as a KGB general, that he heard from his colleagues that when Trump visited, they they learned things about him. He left his presence there. They involving extracurricular activities. And and again, it's important to say, as I do in the book, that the KGB general offered no evidence in support of his claims other than his memory. Um, so we know that we know things like in 2016, in the lead up to the election, that there was you know, the secret um, Moscow Tower um, sort of agreement that was in the works while Trump was was praising Putin publicly. So these are data points. But to connect those data points would be something that I don't feel like there's enough data to actually do. Um, I, I think what we do know is that in 2016, both privately and publicly, Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump um, had a certain affinity for each other that that was surprising. Um, and that does not fit um, with the way traditional Democrats or Republicans have engaged with Russia in the past. Um, and I think there, there it, it remains an open question as to why that's the case. Um, but I think what matters there is that it helps to explain why Russia, A, preferred Trump, and B, so aggressively targeted the election. Although I would say that, that a myth here is that this is all about Trump, um, or that this all could have been some 
I mean, maybe to push back actually on the idea that this is a decades long project because, you know, Russia's operation started in 2014 before Trump had even announced with the initial goals, according to John Brennan and Jim Clapper, both of whom I interviewed, to hurt Hillary Clinton and to sow discord. So, so those, were the, those were the aims. And in fact, on election day itself, the Russian government, according to these high level sources, expected Donald Trump to lose and had plans to continue undermining Hillary Clinton. And I detail how they were going to do that in the book. So this started long before Donald Trump. This was going to continue after Donald Trump. This will continue after Donald Trump if he were to lose in the 2020 election. This has been happening for decades. It will still happen for decades. The Russian government has a tradition of interfering in America's electoral politics. So I think a real danger here is to presume that, you know, once Trump's gone, everything's going to be okay. That That's not so. They will still seek to achieve their aims. Um, and I'm watching to see what their contingency plan is for if in a hypothetical world the incumbent president were to lose in November. Let me just say, look, I just want to say little things for the audience here. So I think what we're hearing, audience, is it's not a 400-pound guy in the basement. It wasn't a hoax. And it's not just 12 little Facebook pay accounts, like Jared Kushner said, that are irrelevant. I think we could oh, summarize okay. that right at this point, right? It's yeah, not yeah, one right. of those three I things. We're there. And I think that's something that I, do, that I do want to say to the audience, especially with the historical mind here, which is this is a long running tradition that crosses party lines. So in the 1960 and 68 elections, the KGB sought to destroy the candidacies of Richard Nixon, a Republican. That's documented in my book. In 1976 and 1984, the KGB tried to destroy the candidacies of Ronald Reagan, a Republican. So in 2016, the idea was to support a Republican. But again, this doesn't have to do with party. This has to do with which candidate serves or is believed to better serve the interests of the Russian government. So so when we think about this as, as just in the vacuum of 2016, it can feel political, but it isn't. And, and, and to say that this is a hoax just defies logic as well as history, because this is something that has been happening for generations. It will continue to happen. And we have to come to grips with that. And we have to recognize that Russia did really infest our information environment in a really successful way in terms of getting those Podesta and DNC emails all over the mainstream media, in terms of reaching more than 150 million Americans across social media, and in terms of penetrating and accessing election systems across our country. That, that is a very ambitious, very complex operation to target our election process. And, and, and the first step to confronting that is to recognizing that it happened and that we are, in fact, vulnerable to that kind of sustained campaign of political subversion. That is the thing that grabbed me when I first saw this book come out from uh, from Hillary Clinton, uh, who I've never met, but you know, she said, this is a good book. I said, let me click on this. And then I saw, I looked at the intro and it just grabbed me and yanked me through the computer screen about how serious this was and about how uh, Putin was in both, of course, everybody's mind through social media, but in the election system, and it looks like Barack Obama chose uh, the red line to be the the voting machines but that they had reached that point they could have changed this you framed this in a way of how incredibly serious this was no this is not a hoax that this this was a serious moment before 2016 and it seems like the intelligence community really went into hyperdrive in, in mid 2016 of oh they're really doing this and we can see them and we can tell them and they're doing it anyhow and we were faced with this horrible choice. And if I get the, the the end of your book, if this is still serious, we haven't fixed this, even if we get rid of Trump and Barr and whatever, this is urgent, this is today. We have to decide, are we gonna be sovereign? And I just wanna dork out real quick on international relations. The definition of a, a nation is a place that has a shared culture, that has a defined border. That, that, that limits violence to the state within those borders and controls it through some form of law. And what I got the sense from a theoretical perspective is if we have an impermeable layer in terms of information, if we don't have COGSEC, cognitive security for our people, we cease to be a country in a way. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, listen, what, what, is an, what is an election? Election is what is what provides a democracy with the future. It's what provides for progress. It's what provides for order because it causes the country to believe in its leadership. 
And if foreigners can choose our leaders, our nation is not sovereign because to be a sovereign government, you have to be free from foreign authority. If foreigners can divide us, then we can't possibly lead abroad. And if foreigners can just steep us into dysfunction, then how can we make progress as a democracy ourselves? So so the stakes of this are, are very high. And, and I do believe that one of the most damaging things that the current president has done is so intentionally make this political, say this didn't happen, because as a result of that, he has made tens of millions of Americans believe that this threat doesn't even exist. Our debate right now isn't about how to respond to the threat. It is about whether there even is a threat, which is so far from where we need to be to make meaningful progress here that it's that it's it's really, frankly, alarming and 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 and, and, and sort of offensive in that the current president both says this threat doesn't exist while also soliciting the, the very type of interference that he's saying isn't actually happening. So, so I don't believe we're going to make meaningful progress here between now and November because the current president has made clear that this is not a priority or even something that he'll recognize publicly as existing, um, which is unfortunate, but there is substantial progress to be made whether there's a new Republican or Democratic president in the future, but we have to come together as a nation to, to make that progress because this is a national threat. It's not a partisan threat. It's a threat to the very functioning of our country because what does Russia want for our country? Dysfunction, the inability to make progress. And that affects everybody. Russia believes it serves its interests when the coronavirus is raging in this country, so there's chaos and disorder. Right. Yeah. We're unable to progress around issues like climate change or racial injustice or, 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 or police brutality. Russia wants us to, to, to be dysfunctional, not only because it makes it more difficult for us to lead, but because it makes it so that Russia could say to the world, see, the democratic model doesn't actually work. That's it's right. flawed and unenviable and a mess. And, and that's what they want for us. And that should offend every American because every American should want a sovereign, well-functioning democracy to be the country in which they live. I want that. I want our country to make progress in moving forward as a, as a well-functioning state. And I do not want for this country what Russia wants for this country, which is the opposite, which is chaos, disorder, and a degraded political system. So this matters for everybody. And I really believe should be treated as such. So you don't sound very optimistic yes. about this not happening in, yes. in November. Preach. Um, yes. <laughs> Um, what, what, do you, what do you say to voters who are going to the polls this year who might either be despondent in believing that you know, their vote doesn't count because it'll be rigged anyhow, or can you offer advice to voters about how to, how to deter or defend themselves against this kind of interference? Yes, what do we do, David? What no, so, do we do? So I think the solution, I mean, citizens shouldn't feel discouraged, they should feel inspired to be engaged, to turn out, to be active citizens of their democracy, because democracies function better when their citizens are engaged. And, 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 and that's, I mean, step one. I think step two is between now and November, just being clear eyed about what could happen and to be ready for it, because there are sort of two questions. The first is between now and November, how Russia will seek to manipulate people. Last time it was social media and stolen emails. Maybe it'll be that again, but something history instructs is that these tactics are always evolving. And when that does happen, just Americans need to not let themselves be played. This this falls in a lot of ways on individual shoulders. If John Podesta's emails are released and you see a gossipy email from John Podesta's email account, you can either share that email on Twitter and say, you know, oh my God, look at this juicy email. Or you could ask yourself, who wants me to see this email? Who gave this email to WikiLeaks? Who is trying to manipulate me in my country? And that's a choice. In France, the emails of Emmanuel Macron's campaign were hacked in 2017, and they had almost no reach or impact in part because the French public, journalists, citizens, and politicians said, we just saw what happened to America, and we don't want to basically be humiliated as, 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 as our country was when this just took over our country. So the same goes for social media, being more discerning, more thoughtful on social media. Who's giving me this information? Is this information accurate? Am I getting news from reliable news sources? And this falls as well on journalists in not just running rampant with materials thrown at them, but asking critically, where is this coming from? Yes! On that source. So, so this often falls on individual actors. I think it is not realistic to say that this is just up to the president. I think the president could make a lot of progress here, but citizens can too, as can the Congress, which for now has been completely inactive. I mean, you've seen no legislation passed around election security nor around social media regulation. So there's a lot of progress to be made that doesn't involve the White House. And and I do believe that as long as citizens are engaged and aware, we can be much more invulnerable to this sort of activity. But 
at, at the end of the day, citizens just have to care. They have to care enough um, to, to push back against this kind of behavior, because if people don't care that foreign actors are manipulating our elections, then then the fight is sort of lost. So so the first step is just deciding that this is unacceptable. And I think I mapped out why I believe it is. And the second is just trying to make your mind more fortified against this sort of malign um, activity. Now, right. speaking because to the here. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, LB. Sorry. We all want to say something. So I just want to say here that this, you're identifying a couple of things that I think are really important. And the first is that it is warfare being waged on us. They're, they're, they are attacking our democracy. And we're, we're, we're not soldiers. We're citizens. And we don't have any armor. We don't have a helmet. We don't have a shield. You know, we don't have these things. So what David just laid out for everybody are it this is your helmet this is your armor this is your shield you have to build your own protection against this attack it is up to us individually and we because we also are not getting collective leadership about it we're not our leadership is not you know there are election interference bills they've been trying to pass but they're all getting blocked it's all getting messed up there on this and we can't count on that you have to count on yourself and you have to call and demand that for when it comes to our fourth estate that they actually act responsible responsible for you for us they they need to be responsible for us. That's their job. They have constitutional protections so that they can be responsible because believe it or not, and I know that all these listeners believe it, if you're Vladimir Putin, you actually just can't lob these bombs from Russia, right? You need people right. to help you spread yeah. it. And they can help you either by just being, you know, in, ill-informed citizens that are sharing and liking and Oh, this sounds good. I I believe in this. Or journalists who are do are carrying the water of this for whatever reason and not penetrating the conversation in a way that it needs to be penetrated about this kind of information warfare that's coming at us. So I really applaud you in that. And the other thing I want to say is so, and it's a question because I don't want this book and all this work that you've done, which is, as Eric said, it's unbelievable. I don't want it to just be an, like how everyone treats the news cycle, right? Of just like, okay, we had that. We talked about that for a little bit and now we're moving on. This is our, this is our weaponry. This is our defense weaponry for what's to come in this election in 2020. And you're so passionate, David. You're so passionate about this. You're really in the light is what I call it. So what can you see that is coming for us, even though you know the tactics change and everything, that our listeners and even whoever you go and, and as you promote your book, those listeners can become aware of so that when it happens, we can bring you back on and you can walk us through what's happening so that we have more armor, so that we have more protection. What can you see is coming in 2020? Sure, um, yeah. And what I, are you I, looking I, out for? I mean, I, I think I'm looking out for five, five things and I think it's best to explain them chronologically. Um, the first thing, as I said, is I'm looking out for how between now and November, foreigners seek to manipulate us, um, how they inject propaganda into our information ecosystem and how we respond to that propaganda. That's something that Russia did four years ago. It's something that there's a long history of as documented in the book and happening in elections, both in the United States and around the world. There's no reason to believe that that won't happen again this cycle. The, the second thing I'm watching out for is whether Russia will proceed to escalate its operations toward affecting the actual vote, whether that means trying to manipulate voting systems or just so chaos on election day. Um, that's something they've tried to do in places like Ukraine, where they sabotage the election commission to display an inaccurate vote tally. That virus was detected, but they tried to do it just to sow confusion. So that was what the Obama team was bracing for last time around. I will be bracing for whether on election day um, there is an attempt to try to sow chaos and delegitimize the outcome of the election itself. In conjunction with that, I'm watching for how much of a difference it makes, difference it makes to Vladimir Putin um, that Donald Trump is the president rather than Barack Obama. Barack Obama struggled in many ways to defend against Russia's operation, but at least he tried to, and at least he established that there would be, you know, costs if Russia proceeded to actually manipulate voting systems, which was that red line. Whereas so far, I mean, there's no reason to believe that Donald Trump would 
punish Russia for interfering in our election. If anything, he wants that. So for Putin, the, the cost question has evolved considerably in terms of any punishment he might suffer for doing this sort of thing. So I think we should be watching for how that matters. I also think we should be watching for whether Trump ups his asks as time progresses if he's losing. Because something that history reveals is that when leaders are losing in election campaigns and when they've shown a willingness to ask foreigners for help, they ask those foreigners for more help. This was most present in uh... Russia's where Boris Yeltsin was running um, in 1996. And as I detail in the book, he begged Bill Clinton over time to help him get reelected, help get reelected. And, and toward the, uh, as election day approached, he upped his ass. He started asking for more. This happened in places like Italy, like France in the Cold War. So I'm watching to see whether those asks um, increase. And, and the last thing I'm looking for is after election day, if Donald Trump loses, whether he will seek to incite unrest or, or violence. Something that I reveal in my book is that the White House was bracing for riots after the election results came in. They had riot teams, riot crisis teams ready in case Donald Trump said the vote was rigged, turn out to the streets. And it, it, again, what history reveals is this isn't unique to him. In elections all over the world, when candidates who are in many ways undemocratic are competing at the ballot box, countries brace for violence, brace for the results to be disputed. This has happened in, in again, in Italy, in Chile, in many different places. And, and, and the way for violence not really to end up happening is if, is if the person who might incite violence loses by 20 points rather than half a point. Um, if, if someone loses by 20 points, it's very difficult to challenge the results. If you lose by 50,000 votes, um, things become a lot more tense and a lot more um, dangerous very quickly. And I guess this is the last thing. The last thing I would watch out for is after Election Day, how what Russia's contingency plan is if Donald Trump does in fact lose. Because again, four years ago, Russia had a plan to continue undermining Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign, right, right, right. Um, which was to continue releasing materials so we need to be clear-eyed about the fact that that kind of interference will persist regardless of who the president is. And I don't know what their plans would be to undermine Joe Biden, because that's not what Jim Clapper, John Brennan, and I discussed, but there are plans. Um, and, and so we have to recognize that this is a long-running challenge that will require a long-term solution. That's how I'm thinking about the period between now and sort of the December, let's say, um, and, and how those factors actually play out and what Russia ends up doing or Trump ends up doing remain to be seen. It's a good place, place to end it, I think. What a great uh, book you've published here because it really gives us an inside look uh, at what happened in the White House in those important hours and days when the Obama administration was beginning to deal with this crisis. And it gives people a real inside look. You've written it in such a spectacularly inside view of the, of the White House. It reminds me a little bit of the West Wing or those kinds of uh, you know, gripping political thrillers where you really are turning pages to find out what happens next. So uh, everyone should read this book because it's so important from a historical perspective and from, uh, from an in sort of just a good read perspective uh, that we recommend Rigged uh, by David Scheimer. It's available everywhere, uh, but it's particularly on Amazon and other booksellers online. And it's also going to be excerpted this Sunday in uh, the New York Times. Is that correct? Yeah, so the New York Times um, reviewed the book and published an excerpt of it, and those are running as well. It's already online if you want to look it up, but they're also running in the Sunday um, Sunday edition, so watch out for that as well. It'll be in the book section. That's awesome. Thank you very much for joining us on Narrative Live, and uh, good luck with everything in your book, and we hope to have you back here in the future. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. This was great. Support Narrative's independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative. And check out our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe and download.